Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another installment of New Books in Military History. With me today is uh, Michael Legiri, who is the author recently of a book on uh, Gephardt von Blücher, the field marshal probably most famous for uh, defeating Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, Dr. Legiri is a professor at the University of North Texas, an author of numerous books, uh, especially on Napoleonic warfare. So it's a real pleasure to talk to him today and about his new biography. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate you having me on today. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation, um, not least because I read your first book uh, roughly a dozen years or so ago on Napoleon in Berlin about the Napoleon's campaign in North Germany in 1813 that was published with the University of Oklahoma Press in its Campaigns and Commanders series. And here you have another book in that series, 12 years later, a biography of Blücher. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, about your interest in uh, Napoleonic warfare, uh, and how you came to write this book? Well, it uh, goes back to graduate school where I had dreams of being a German historian and working on the Second Reich and, and Bismarck and, and the Prussian army that unified Germany. And I had a, a very charismatic professor, and uh, being a, a, an undergraduate student who didn't really understand how things worked, I figured, well, this professor could probably, you know, point me in the right direction. So uh, I went to him, and he was the Napoleonic professor, and he taught all the courses on French Revolution and Napoleon. And I said, hey, uh, I, w- I want to work on on. Bismarck and the Prussian army, and he said, oh, if you want to know about the Prussian army, you got to look at it back in the days of Napoleon, because that's when the Prussian army really, you know, the modern Prussian army really uh, was born and and rose from there, so in that way, I got kind of sucked back in time to the Napoleonic period, and uh, that's where I ended up staying for my graduate work, and uh, I had always avoided Blücher, because he kind of seemed a larger-than-life figure, um, there were only two books in English on him, and, and uh, now that I've done the actual research, uh, one of those books is more uh, along the lines of fiction than, than, uh, than fact. But at the time, as a, as a graduate student and uh, early in my career, I had stayed away from Blucher. He seemed very complex. There seemed to be a, a lot of uh, preconceived notions about him out there that uh, I bought into and, and found that I was uh, – probably wrong on a lot of them once I started doing the research. But uh, my, uh, my uh, dissertation topic was on another Prussian general. And uh, he, uh, the Prussian general I wrote my dissertation on was a guy named Friedrich Wilhelm von Bülow. And uh, him and Blücher had a very uh, rocky relationship, um, almost came to blows a few times. Uh, Blucher was the more senior of the two and almost had uh, Bulo locked up. So I kind of looked at him in a young, naive, uh, unbiased or biased way, looked at him uh, uh, kind of as as, a, as an enemy. Um, but uh, I eventually came around and realized, uh, uh, thanks to the folks at the University of Oklahoma Press, that a, a biography on Blucher might be something that uh, – 
what the field could use and might be popular among audiences, uh, non-academic audiences, uh, because he is, as you mentioned, known for uh, arriving at Waterloo. And uh, I appreciate the nod you gave him by saying uh, he defeated Napoleon at Waterloo, because I certainly believe that he did. Uh, you know, here we are in the uh, bicentennial of Waterloo, and. Uh, there's a whole lot of literature coming out, and uh, I still maintain what I say in my book, that uh, if the Prussians under Blucher had not arrived at Waterloo, Wellington would have been crushed, uh, driven into the sea. And uh, I don't think Napoleon would have went on to win the, win the war, but uh, he certainly would have prolonged it, and he wouldn't have abdicated uh, like he did uh, when he did. So uh, thanks to some prodding from the University of Oklahoma Press, uh, I set my sights on doing a biography on Blucher. And uh, at first I, I was real reluctant uh, to do it, but uh, now that I did, I'm real happy, um, primarily because it's uh, really given me a lot of insight into what uh, what Napoleon did wrong in 1813 and 14, and, and then again in 1815, and uh, just how important Prussia was to the coalition that eventually defeated Napoleon. So all in all, it was a good e intellectual exercise for me, and uh, uh, <laughs> I, I tend to write very large, and uh, the the biography itself is right around 500 pages. Um, what did not go into the biography is the actual day-to-day um, uh, -day operations of the armies that Blucher commanded, and uh, those will be coming out. The, the history of, of that will be coming out this summer in, a, in two volumes that, is gonna be, that are going to be published by Cambridge University Press uh, on the year 1813, the campaign of 1813. So writing the biography was really just the tip of the iceberg, and the actual uh, campaign studies are – are over a thousand pages, both volumes combined, and uh, I was very appreciative of of uh, Cambridge University Press for letting me publish uh, such a massive account on just one year of a war um, in in times when academic publishing, you know, you see a lot of belt tightening and and budget concerns and so forth. So, so that's yeah, let let, uh, let fans of Napoleonic warfare then make room on their shelves, eh? Yes, yes, and uh, and uh, you know some some folks uh, some criticism of the of the Blucher biography was that uh, the uh, you know the campaigns were were very brief for the campaign descriptions, um, but uh, what I do in in three chapters in the Blucher biography turns out to be a good uh, thousand pages in the uh, campaign studies that are coming out later this year. So, so you made the point, and, and certainly my introduction was was made in the immediate aftermath of reading the book. So I, I had I had I bought your thesis about Blucher, but it is true that the the common conception of the Battle of Waterloo is that Wellington is duking it out, duking it out, and there are all these dramatic incidents and moments in this battle, and then sort of out of the blue, here come the Prussians from the east, and and you know catch Napoleon a, a bit with his pants down and and win. And you show that it was actually much more. A deliberate kind of strategic um, decision making by Blucher, partly alliance politics that that brought that moment uh, that made that moment happen. And the, you emphasize the the Battle of Ligny before the what's considered a defeat of Blucher and how that yeah. how that's instrumental in getting him to the Waterloo battle, battlefield uh, when he gets there. The the main uh, 
aha moment, I guess, as they say, uh, for me was just how much faith he put into Wellington. And the two had never met. Um, he looked at the, the spy never meeting. He looked at Wellington as kind of a kindred spirit. Um, he had had many letdowns uh, in the coalition itself by other coalition commanders who, who commanded armies. But for some reason, mainly because of, of the press reports that were, you know, filing into Germany while the armistice of 1813 was, was uh, ensuing, the press reports on Wellington's operations in Iberia, uh, in Spain and in Portugal. And for some reason, Blucher just looked on Wellington as, as a kindred spirit, someone he could trust, a man of his word. But most importantly, he looked at Wellington as somebody who bought into the same understanding of warfare as he did and the same understanding of warfare that Napoleon had. And that understanding was very simple. You beat the enemy on the battlefield. You do not uh, do it uh, in the style of, of a chess match. You do it in head-to-head confrontations, and you beat the enemy on the battlefield. And because of Wellington's string of success in Iberia, um, Blucher believed that uh, this was a man who, who had the same uh, values when it came to waging wars he did. And so he felt that it was imperative for him to support Wellington at Waterloo that day. And uh, that was the, the real genesis of it all. Uh, of course, there were strategic considerations, um, but uh, there is a little bit of, of controversy surrounding what happened that, uh, on, the, uh, on the day of Linney and uh, the immediate aftermath of Linney as to uh, his chief of staff, August von Gneisenau, uh, was very distrustful of the British, and he did not want to support Wellington, but uh, made the decision uh, after Blucher had been wounded at Linney and kind of disappeared, uh, was out of touch for quite a while with his staff. Nobody knew where he was, whether he had been captured, whether he had been killed, but still Gneisenau made the decision to to retreat from Linney in a direction that would still allow them to uh, uh, operate uh, mutually with Wellington, and the irony of this is that uh, uh, Blucher had this this blind trust, this faith in in Wellington, and uh, Wellington at this stage uh, was becoming more and more a, a political general, uh, not in the sense that. Uh, he had um, connections back in London because he already did, and he was already a political general in that sense. But he was becoming a major player in the coalition and the uh, the, uh, the voice of the allies, so to speak, against Napoleon. And um, he uh, he had very reserved uh, notions of what uh, the Prussians should gain out of defeating Napoleon. And, uh, they were very much contrary to what the Prussians themselves wanted. So, uh, in effect, um, he was no fan of the Prussians, even though Blucher was, was a big fan of him. And, uh, uh, getting back to the battle of Waterloo, it was, uh, dis- you know, decided, on the on the night that uh, the Prussians were defeated, the night of Linny, that they would 
support Wellington if he made a stand. So they were determined, despite the uh, controversy, uh, which you can see sometimes uh, in film and literature, that it was uh, Gneiss now opposing Blucher, but in the end he he agreed. Um, you know, be that as it may, the army marched in a direction after the Battle of Linney so that it could maintain contact and operate uh, within mutual supporting distance of of the uh, Anglo-Dutch uh, army that Wellington was commanding. And it, it's not just at Waterloo that, that you make this point. It's kind of a theme in in uh, Blucher's operations and, and part of what you argue makes him a, a progenitor of modern warfare is his willingness to operate – more more independently of his supply lines than than previous generals. So you you have this picture of um, uh, Schwarzenberg, the the Austrian commander, always kind of predictably falling back on his supply lines. Napoleon counts on Blucher to do that at Ligny, but he crosses him up and goes the other direction, more, kind of the other direction towards Blucher. That's that's exactly right, Jay. And this is a little bit of. Uh Shame on Napoleon, I believe, um, because uh, he should have recognized his adversary. He should have uh, taken into consideration what Blucher had done in 1813 and 1814. Uh, Many times Blucher did what was at that time considered very unorthodox, very dangerous, and that was to – you know, basically abandoned his supply, his, his uh, line of operations. And the line of operations, as you know, is extremely important. It's where all your supply is coming from, all your communications, all your recruits or, you know, reinforcements, I should say, all of your equipment. Um, it's, your, it's, the, it's an Army's lifeline. And uh, on, on several occasions in 1813 and 1814, Blucher just abandoned his and, uh, and you know, retreated in a different direction or, or marched in a different direction. And, and Napoleon should have been more conscious of the, of the adversary he was facing. Um, and this goes back to more, as I said, shame on Napoleon, because as he, as he got older, you know, as the general of, of the French Revolution gave way to the, the statesman, the leader of the empire, the emperor, um, he became very contemptuous of the foes that he played, uh, that he faced. Uh, he always uh, underestimated them. He always uh, uh, miscalculated them. He always underestimated the size of the forces he was facing. Um, and uh, it all goes back to his, his contempt for his enemy and his belief in himself. And uh, he, he should have recognized that uh, – the army he was facing at Linney, commanded by Blucher, that there would have been a good chance that that army would not follow its line of operations. If it did, and uh, just to just to refresh here, the Prussians were defeated at Linney on the uh, on the, the 16th of June, and their line of operations ran due east to the Rhine. And uh, once a an army is defeated. Normally, it would fall back on its line of operations and regroup and and uh, and uh, re, you know recollect itself and, and prepare for for more operations. And uh, conversely, for most army commanders, you did not want to be cut off from your uh, line of operations, or you did not want an enemy force between you and your capital sitting on your line of operations or you and your main uh, uh, depot. So uh, 
So by all intents, an army that was defeated on the 16th of June at Linney should have marched east-northeast back to the Rhine River. Um, But since it was Blücher who was in command, it did not, and it marched due north uh, toward the uh, the Belgian uh, town of Wavre, which is just uh, a little bit east, about 10 miles east of Waterloo. And I said this was a pattern. It seems to have been at least related to some of his activities in 1813 in Silesia then too, which you you argue makes uh, sets the conditions for the Battle of Leipzig, the Battle of Nations, that, that really is the first major defeat of Napoleon, the kind of rollback of Napoleon into France. Right. One of the interesting um – uh, another aha moment, so to speak, uh, in, in writing this book was that uh, Blucher has this reputation of, in fact, his nickname, his own troops called him Marshal Forward because he was always advancing, always going forward. But uh, really, the most damage he did to Napoleon in, in 1813 and 1814 was, was retreating, marching backward and not meeting Napoleon head to head in a decisive battle, which could uh, really changed the course of the war, and and from Napoleon's perspective, he really needed a battle, a decisive battle. But uh, several times, uh, Blucher just retreated and uh, did not take the bait, so to speak. And he surprised everyone. He surprised, you know, all the. Uh, there were a lot of naysayers when he received command of the army in eighteen uh, August of eighteen thirteen. The army uh, that was operating in Silesia, which thus was called the Army of Silesia. There were a lot of naysayers who felt that he didn't deserve the command, that he was unfit for the command. Um, And uh, they figured that the first opportunity he had, he would just march recklessly against Napoleon. And this did not turn out to be the case. And uh, he really showed great patience and restraint. He he really bought into the Allied plan of operations. And uh, all in all, he, he did a fantastic job considering what he could have done and what people expected him to do. But getting back to the point about unorthodox operations, um, his his retreats um, into Silesia in 1813, I think he retreated four different times, if memory serves, um, in August and and September. Um, And then finally, at the end of of September, um, he made the decision to do what we were just talking about, and that was to abandon his his supply of operations. Uh, I'm sorry, his line of operations, his, his line of supply and communications, and uh, march in a totally different direction. And uh, that was to march basically um, down the Elba River and uh, leave Napoleon basically in his in in the rear of Blucher's army, uh, sitting right on Blucher's line of operations, and uh, he would march down or or north uh, uh, along the Elba River, cross the Elba River um, in the region uh, between the the two fortresses of Wittenberg and Torgau, and then operate on the left or the the, uh, southern bank of the Rhine, uh, which was basically uh, closer to Napoleon's uh, base of operations at Dresden. And for for a good 10 days, uh, Blücher's army disappeared. And uh, Napoleon, uh, once again, shame on him. He he did not uh, take note of of where Blücher went, uh, was unsure, and really at that point in time uh, was an uh, uh, Blucher's army was an afterthought and um, 
once he finally realized where the army of Silesia went, um, he launched a, a massive offensive against it, and it was designed to basically drive the army of Silesia into the Elba River, uh, destroying it in the process. And uh, once again, to escape this blow, uh, Blücher did the uh, the unorthodox, and instead of retreating back along the the line that he had marched and, and retreating back across the Elba River, uh, eastward across the Elba River, he did the exact opposite, and he marched west. And, uh, you know, whatever uh, lines of operation that he had reconfigured after crossing the Elba River were now sacrificed um, uh, completely. And it wasn't until November. This happened in, in the, the first week of October. And it wasn't until November that his baggage and his, uh, his uh, supplies actually caught up to his army. So that's, uh, the, that, uh, you know, goes to show just how unorthodox uh, his operations were. And because of these unorthodox operations, uh, as you pointed out, it, it created the conditions for a decisive battle to be waged at Leipzig uh, in which uh, four allied armies converged on the French army. And it should be noted that Napoleon allowed this to happen. He wanted it to happen. Um, throughout August, September, and October, he was chasing allied armies north, south, east, west, and he could not bring one to a decisive battle. So he figured, okay, I will sit here in Leipzig and I'll let them come to me. And, uh, you know, we'll just let everything ride on what happens on the battlefield. So that uh, highlights the reason you subtitled the, the book the way you did, the, the Scourge of Napoleon, so that he's Napoleon is at very, very frequently and at important points extremely frustrated uh, with by Blucher and with Blucher, and you, you have a few, just a few quotes from Napoleon where he's clearly expressing this kind of outrage that this, this guy Blucher, is, there he is again. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the difficult thing about Napoleon was he was a, a very – vain guy and a very politically conscious guy and he never never gave credit to his enemies uh, you know by name so when we'd find a nugget like that where he actually comes out and 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 says that one of his enemies has given him a hard time it's really something to be to be cherished because he doesn't uh, he doesn't honor his, his enemy very often um but uh, yeah in 1813 14 and 15 um uh, there's examples in each of those campaigns where Blucher undertakes these unorthodox operations or, or retreats in a way that was totally unexpected, which really just, just befuddle Napoleon. And, and it goes against the rules of war. And uh, actually, it, when I sit down and I look at the young Napoleon, the general of the republic, and the, the things that he used to do to confound the, you know, the, uh, the generals that he faced, generals who've been raised in the tradition of 18th century warfare, who are you know very much uh, uh, waging wars that were like chess matches. Um, the things that Napoleon did, the young Napoleon did, the General Bonaparte, that they were unorthodox, and that's what kept his opponents off balance. And and uh, the we come you know. Uh, almost full circle where Napoleon's the one who is now uh, kept off balance and his adversaries are doing the unorthodox and going against the rules of established warfare and throwing him off and, and uh, you know, just, just driving him crazy, so to speak. So that allows me to make the other point about Blucher that I, I guess I knew, but 
wasn't in the forefront of my mind, and that is his age. He's got to be one of the oldest guys uh, on a, on horseback during this period. Yeah, and, and surprisingly, um, there were many guys who were who were up in age, at least in their sixties, if not in their seventies, and uh, that had actually uh, come down a little bit from from the uh, from the seventeen nineties when when young General Bonaparte first took the field in in um, northern Italy and he was f- facing Austrian generals who were in their seventies and eighties and uh, you know I, I could not imagine a seventy year old man or an eighty year old man on a horse and when you think about uh, what happened at the Battle of Linney when uh, Blucher had his horse killed and the horse fell on top of him. Um, for him to to survive that and to be able to go on and and uh, you know he basically needed uh, only twenty four hours to recover um, and that's pretty remarkable so yeah he was an old man and that's what made uh, made the study uh, interesting because he spanned such a long his life spanned uh, such a long period of time he fought in the in the Seven Years War which started in seventeen fifty six and uh, you know he. he went on to see, you know, fight at battle, the Battle of Waterloo. So it's a lot of history under his belt and uh, a lot, lot of crossover, too, um, which really is something about history that I enjoy finding. And what I mean by crossover is here you have a, a guy who fought in the armies of Frederick the Great, um, who was king of Prussia from 1740 to 1786. Um, he, you know, he fought for Frederick the Great. He had a very... Uh, turbulent relationship with the king. Uh, the king actually threw him out of the army and cashiered him. Um, and then at the Battle of Waterloo, you've got one of his, uh, one of the corps in the Prussian army, the fourth corps, uh, the, com- the cavalry commander of that Prussian fourth corps at Waterloo was the future uh, German emperor, William I, the, the emperor who, who you know, uh, oversaw Bismarck's unification of Germany. So here you have a, have a, have a man who, who spanned the lives of Frederick the Great all the way to, to uh, Kaiser Wilhelm I. So uh, very interesting guy, very interesting life, very interesting period of history and uh, – uh, like I said, to me, that that's those little nuggets in our research as historians that that kind of bring a smile to our face. Yeah, I, it was funny while you were talking. I had an idea for a Blucher diet. You know, if he if he's remained so active for so long, uh, there must be some secret to his diet. But then I'm remembering the the, the passages in your book that talk about his his alcoholism and and uh, the many other health problems. Yeah, I think I think his insides are probably pickled. Maybe that's what happened. They they're well preserved that way. But uh, yeah, he. Uh, uh, for as, as fit of a man as he was, he did have some some pretty brutal health problems, and of course, what uh, what, what I didn't put in the book uh, because I couldn't substantiate it was that there was always uh, always a dark rumor that he had syphilis uh, um, and so forth. And he was certainly a ladies' man, um, especially in his younger days. But uh, I, I do uh, very much believe that he, he suffered from some. Uh, severe psychological problems. I think he was, uh, you know, he was uh, uh, depressed for for a period of time. You know, clinical depression. Um, uh, I don't know how how deep the uh, the problems went in terms of being related to alcoholism. Part of the research done on Blucher prior uh, to this point in time, uh, there was a lot of reverence 
So um, you very, very uh, infrequently would you find uh, something negative about Blucher, whether it was uh, um, people writing at the time, contemporaries or subsequent historians. Um, you always heard these rumors that Blucher was a heavy drinker and a gambler and a womanizer and so forth. But these were all, it was all hearsay. No one were actually sat down and, and wrote about it. Um, so the extent, you know, we also hear on the other hand that, you know, during the war, he didn't allow any gambling at his headquarters. Um, um, so it's, there's some contradictions, some gray areas. Uh, you get, uh, you get different accounts from from uh, the other national forces that were involved in this coalition, particularly the Russians. Um, so it's it's tough to to really nail the head on this and say, okay, this is the way Blucher definitively was, you know, a, a gambler, drinker, you know, gambler, drinker, womanizer. But uh, they're they're telltale signs, and uh, and uh, the. The way that he was revered in in in, in both contemporary writing and, and the subsequent literature also made it uh, a little bit difficult to really nail down uh, just uh, just <laughs> what how many vices he had and 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 you know how bad they impacted him. I mean, hey, you live as long as he did and 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 endure those conditions and be on horseback and and eat nothing but. Uh, boiled and mashed potatoes for a couple of years, you, you got to be doing something right. Or conversely, you can't be doing too many things wrong. Yeah, I, w- I want to come back to the point about legacy. You have a, a final chapter on his his uh, legacy after the Napoleonic Wars. But um, you were just talking about something else. Oh, the the notion, his service under Frederick the Great. What, what I found interesting, and it's, it's a kind of a thread that you pull loosely through the book, is this notion of he has a very strong sense of being a foreigner in the Prussian army, right? Because he's from uh, Swedish Mecklenburg. Right. right? And, and yet he becomes this great national German nationalist hero. And there's this kind of interesting transition that, that I think illustrates something broader about, you know, the development of German nationalism, German history in this period, that he starts out complaining incessantly of, of his poor treatment as a foreigner in the Prussian army to being the symbol of the Prussian army. Right. It, it is an interesting transition. And, um, uh, that whole group of insiders, uh, who he was a part of, uh, uh, Gneisenau and, uh, Gerhard von Schornhorst, uh, um, they all felt, you know, felt like outsiders cause they were, they weren't native Prussians, but, uh, somehow Blucher's able to, to, you know, shed this, this uh, this uh, tag of being this label of being a foreigner and really rise up and be the the voice of the of the pro Prussian party the war party and uh, it really is uh, indicative of of how um, with a with a little zeal and a little uh, fire in your belly you can really uh, shed uh, shed a, a negative uh, label um, which he did and and. Also, it's it was amazing that um, when Napoleon uh, crushed uh, Prussia in the War of the Fourth Coalition, which took place in 1806 and 1807, uh, 
Blucher was one of the few generals to emerge from that war with his reputation relatively intact, even though he had been forced to surrender. Um, at, 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 there was a, a, a big witch hunt in, in uh, Prussian military circles to, to root out the, the, the generals who had uh, surrendered disgracefully. Uh, uh, there were very, uh, very many um, incidences where, where you know, a fortress garrison with, with 20,000 men would surrender to a brigade of French cavalry. Um, so there was a, a, a big uh, to-do to, to root out these guys who had failed the king and failed the state. And uh, Blucher was found to have uh, surrendered. Uh, to, he was found to have been forced to surrender, and it was an honorable surrender. So he was one of the few guys who escaped from, from this debacle with a relatively decent reputation. But, um, you know, in his early days, he... Uh, he did really feel like um, he was uh, not part of the uh, of the Prussian inner circle, and he really never was part of the Prussian inner circle. Um, uh, Blue Bloods is uh, the Prussian Blue Bloods, the Junkers, as I as I refer to them, um, and as they're known in history, the East Elbian uh, nobility, the 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 core of the of the uh, Prussian aristocracy that lived east of the Elba River and so forth. Um, and he he never really fit into that group and. Uh, but somehow he managed to to take the reins of the army and and rise up above all these guys and and to be more more Prussian than the purest uh, blooded Prussian in, in the army. And of course, victory has a lot to do for that. It, it you know, as they, as they say about the the uh, about modern sports nowadays, you know, winning helps helps. Uh, cure a lot of evils, and and that certainly was the case for Blucher because because in the end he won and. Uh, that that uh, he won, and uh, he became a great figure for the uh, romantic uh, um, writers of the 19th century, and uh, he just you know provided many many uh, uh, filled many many roles for them in in being this uh, this this great Germanic figure who who drove back the French and helped liberate the fatherland and so forth, and uh, you know there's a there's a lot of debate. Um, in uh, in historical circles about about what this war was that the Prussians fought in 1813, 1814, and 1815, and they uh, refer to it. The Prussians referred to it as the Befreiungskrieg, the the wars of liberation uh, to liberate Germany from French rule, and and there is somewhat of a of a misnomer there because uh, just about all of Germany was was fighting on Napoleon's side. When, when the war began in 1813, and only gradually did the German states uh, throw off the so-called yoke of Napoleonic oppression and join the Prussians and the Austrians and the Russians in, in the liberating Central Europe from, from French control. But uh, there, there, as I said, in some academic circles, there's a lot of questions as to, you know, was this really a, a war of liberation? Did the Germans really talk about this stuff? Did they really think about this stuff? And, and in, in Blucher's case, he certainly did. He always, in his letters, harped on you know, freeing the, the fatherland from, from French oppression, from Napoleonic tyranny. So this very much was, was something that was, was in his heart and what, what drove him and, and motivated him. And it's what, what, what kept him up at night was, was you know, f- delivering Germany from French tyranny. 
So that's it's a delicate balance, though, because in wanting to undo the the myth making around Marshall Forward, this the idea of this un, this um, hard charging attack at any cost, uh, general uh, motivated primarily by revenge is kind of the corollary of right, right, right. revenge for for Jena and Auerstadt. You have to be you have to balance that. You you want to show that he's not just impetuous. He shows restraint, uh, but he is still motivated by revenge. Oh yeah, deep down he wants. To get back, uh. he, lo- he loved nothing more than to, to hang Napoleon himself. Um, although I think that if he actually, I think if he actually came face to face with Napoleon in a situation, Napoleon's charm would, would win him over. But uh, you know, then again, if in, unless uh, unless there was a really good interpreter there, Napoleon wouldn't have a chance because Blucher knew no French at all. Um, but uh, yes, he he hated Napoleon and he. Uh, he was just burning with 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 uh, you know desire for vengeance, and uh, uh, as his chief of staff, Gen Eisenhower said, uh, to do to the French uh, what they did to us, to to visit their cities as they visited ours, and so forth. And uh, the, the French were were a nasty lot. Um, you know, we give Napoleon a lot of credit because uh, in his conquests he brought such things as as. Uh, the concept of equality before the law, before law, um, uh, representative government, constitutional government. But, of course, that all came after French occupation, which was pretty brutal. Um, you know, rape, pillage, and plunder was the order of the day. Uh, French troops were very unruly. Um, nobody nobody wanted to, to be occupied by a French army. It, it was just, uh, you know, chaos and, and anarchy. Um so uh, the French, the French did a lot, of, lot of evil things to to the Prussians in particular. Um, they exploited Germany itself uh, pretty thoroughly, and uh, so there was a, a great desire there. Um, whether we could say that this desire uh, was tied to uh, the idea of some higher idea of a unified Germany, for the for the for the peasants out in their fields or the, the lower middle class burger in the, in the town and in, in, in city probably not probably not probably it was just the the raw basic desire for for revenge but for some uh, you know there was this idea uh, attached to this war of liberation that uh, um, after Germany is liberated we're going to create a, a a federally unified Germany to prevent uh, such things as as uh, a French conquest to prevent that from ever happening again, but um, but you know there was a, a lot of uh, of uh, lost face in that war in 1806, the war, of the Fourth Coalition. You mentioned uh, the twin battles of Jena and Auerstedt. Um, uh, just a little background on that. Uh, up until that time. Uh, the Prussians enjoyed the pride of place in terms of military prowess, and uh, you know, although Frederick the Great had been dead for for twenty years, many people thought that uh, Napoleon was about to meet his match in eighteen hundred and six. He had not faced the Prussians. Um, in fact, uh, the Prussians had been involved in the wars of the French Revolution for only three years, starting in seventeen ninety five, uh, seventeen ninety two, and then in seventeen ninety five, they signed a peace treaty with France, got out of the war, and actually, between seventeen ninety five and, and eighteen hundred and six, they had had 
uh, generally very decent relations with first the French Republic and then with uh, with uh, Napoleon when he took over the government in 1799 and uh, they had had very good relations with him up until about 1805 and then the situation spiraled out of control and uh, in terms of, of the military situation uh, first revolutionary France and then um, the France led by Napoleon won three coalition wars. Uh, the first coalition, which was uh, defeated uh, in 1792, the second coalition was defeated in 1802, and the third coalition was defeated in 1805. But uh, as I said, Prussia had only participated in those coalition wars for three short years during the first coalition, and now all of Europe was saying, aha, well, Bonaparte might have been able to push around the Austrians and the Russians, but now he's dealing with the Prussians. That's going to be another story. And uh, there's the famous quote by the by the Prussian general to his king saying that uh, the French may have Herr Bonaparte, but uh, your army has many Bonapartes. And, uh, of course, that proved to be uh, uh, fatally wrong for the Prussians, and in one day, Napoleon destroyed the, the Prussian army on the uh, 14th of October, 1806, and uh, uh, he was in Berlin by, within two weeks after that victory, and uh, by the end of the year, he had overrun all of Prussia. So it was uh, a huge, huge blow to the Prussians, to the prestige, to the army, um, the total apathy of, of the uh, civilian population to the defeat showed a real disconnect between between the army and the government on one hand and the people on the other. So, um, so it was a, a real big blow, professional blow to to the Prussians to uh, be defeated so decisively. And and what ensued after that were years of French occupation, and uh, the situation only went went from bad to worse. Uh, by 1812, the Prussians were so firmly uh, under Napoleon's iron fist, that they were actually uh, forced to provide troops for the invasion of Russia. And uh, the crowning uh, of that was uh, Napoleon forced the Prussian king, Frederick William III, to cashier Blücher, to basically fire him and, and, and uh, send him to exile uh, in Silesia. So uh, that goes to show how in just six years the Prussians went from being the army that would destroy Napoleon to being so firmly under his grasp that they had to provide troops for the invasion of Russia, and Blucher himself was forced into retirement. Yeah, further evidence of Napoleon's the Blucher being a thorn in Napoleon's side. Right. The other thing, the other thing that understanding that motivation helps us understand is is 1814 and what the after Waterloo, the drive on Paris, because you paint this picture of the Austrians. Counseled by Metternich being very reluctant, not really wanting a decisive victory, hoping to use French power to balance uh, Russian power. The Brit British, you've already mentioned, need Wellington and the eye on the kind of post-war situation. But he, you have the Prussians and Blucher really kind of forcing the decision and saying that we're we're going to Paris. Right. the uh, The situation in 1814 was very different than it was in 1813. In 1813. The, the risk of defeat was so great, risk of defeat at the hands of Napoleon was still so great that it created this, this community of interest between the three major powers waging war in Central Europe. And that, of course, uh, those, of course, were Prussia, Russia, and Austria. And so even though the, the 
there's a lot of friction still uh, in the upper levels of command between these three states. Um, you know, you have an Austrian as commander in chief of all allied forces, kind of the, the Eisenhower of 1813. And that was, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Schwarzenberg, the Austrian Schwarzenberg, and he commanded the main allied army. And then you have uh, two other armies, one of them commanded by Blücher, and uh, no one really listened to Schwarzenberg, but still he had this nominal command. But still, even though you have this this stress in, in, in allied relationship and they, the relations between the allies and their politics and so forth, still the military needs and military concerns overrode the political concerns the the rivalries between these these uh, great powers because you know, got to remember going into the Napoleonic Wars, um, the, the, these countries they they Russia and Austria, Prussia and Austria they were arch enemies. And uh, uh, for example, when when Prussia went to war with Austria against France in 1792 as part of the War of the First Coalition, most Prussian officers looked at the Austrians as their true enemies and not the French. So you have a lot of historical baggage that goes into creating this alliance in 1813, the first time that Napoleon will face all the other great powers of Europe at the same time, uh, Great Britain, Russia, Austria, and Prussia. And uh, still the, 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 the fact that he had lost half a million men the year before in Russia – that still, that was you know completely off the table by the middle of 1813. He had a, he had replaced the army he lost in Russia. He was just as powerful as he was uh, the year before, and this, the likelihood of him winning was still so great that these other powers, Prussia, Russia, and Austria in particular, were able to to put a lid on. The, the rivalries that they felt for each other, this historical baggage that I'm, I'm mentioning, and they're able to conduct military operations with the goal of, of defeating Napoleon. Well, by the end of 1813, they've chased Napoleon out of Germany completely. He's recrossed the Rhine back into France, and the Allies have reached the Rhine itself. Well, here's where the community of interest breaks down. It's very obvious that Central Europe has been liberated. Napoleon's defeated. He should, you know, a, a, a sane person, so to speak, would be willing to compromise and make a deal and, and, and seek peace. And as you mentioned, the Austrians, they're now thinking of, of post-war Europe, and, and they once again look back to who their great rivals are, and they see that, that Russia's a huge rival. They don't want Russia having uh, any real uh, leverage in Central Europe. They look at Prussia, and Prussia is their great rival in Germany, so they don't want uh, Prussia to have any, any real power in Germany. Well, what's the best way to counter both of them? And that is to keep Napoleon on the throne of France. And you keep a strong France to counter Russia and to a smaller degree Prussia. And uh, so there's... The Austrians get to the Rhine River, and they're pretty much convinced that the war is over. It's time to negotiate. And uh, the Prussians, and, and uh, luckily for them, the, the ruler of Russia, Tsar Alexander I, they felt that, uh, that no, the war is not over. Uh, if, we, if, if we give Bonaparte uh, a peace treaty, he's simply going to retool 
and and cross the Rhine River with a bigger army next year. Uh, we've got to finish the business we started. We've got to defeat Napoleon. And, uh, you know, f- as far as the Prussians were concerned, they wanted to, to defeat him and, and overthrow him. Now, when I say the Prussians, um, I got to say, I got to make a uh, make a distinction that I'm talking about the military, the uh, the king, for the most part, sided with the Austrians and felt that the war was over and it was time to negotiate a, a peace treaty. So uh, uh, the community of interest that had bound the Allies to defeating Napoleon in Central Europe, that was successful. But once they reached the Rhine River, the community of interest is done. It's gone. It's evaporated. Now we start seeing uh, political, politically motivated acts of, of national interest where the Austrians are looking out for themselves the Russians are looking out for themselves. The Prussians are looking out for themselves, and uh, they still have Bonaparte to deal with. And uh, they're going to have to, uh, against their will, they're going to have to in- invade France, mainly because of Napoleon's own intransigence. He could have negotiated a pretty decent deal, um, but uh, he f- refused to do so. He really believed that the Allies uh, were were bound or you know they were uh, dead set on on invading France and, and removing him from from his throne so he felt that any type of deal that he made with them was just a, a cover for their true intentions and so uh, the generous offers that they they offered him that they made to him at the end of of 1813 he he rejected out of hand so let me make one final comment about what I think are the virtues of this book, and then I'll ask you a question. Sure. Um, the question, just to give you a chance to mull it over while I make my, my comment, uh, has to do with what book I should read next. I always like to ask my authors, kind of, what are they reading? What's the best recent thing that they've, they've read so that I can then track that down and maybe feature it on, on the podcast? So while you think about that, I'll make a comment about the book, which is, um, with so much going on around World War One and so much literature coming out about World War One, one of my favorite books is still uh, Holger Herwig's The First World War, Germany and Austria-Hungary, which came out in 97. So it's almost 20 years old. But because it tells the story of World War One from the central powers, kind of from that, not not that he's sympathetic, but from that perspective of, of the German-Austrian uh, struggle – um, you get a, a nice balance between the Eastern and the Western front, and you get a kind of holistic v- uh, view of the war that you often don't get from more British-centered or West, West Front-centered um, stories of you know, American involvement and so on and so forth. So in some ways, it's, you're not, you haven't tried to write the same book. It's a biography, but in, to the extent that, especially in that later period, Blucher was so central to um, – so much of what was going on in the war, it's kind of a refreshing perspective to turn that around and not see the Napoleonic Wars from Wellington's perspective or from Napoleon's perspective, but from this Central European perspective, marching, marching west. Right. Um, so uh, that's one. Of, it's it's not a history of the Napoleonic Wars, but you learn so much about about it by adopting this somewhat unique perspective, uh, and by. Uh, focusing the attention on Blucher and, and trying to correct some of the historical record about him. So you can either respond to that or, or answer my earlier question. And- uh, I can do both. The uh, the angle that I write from is um, is from the Allied perspective, and it's it's funny. I just uh, had a 
had an email exchange with uh, the man who I, I studied under for the for the PhD, a, a guy named Donald Horward, uh, who established the Institute on Napoleon and the French Revolution at Florida State University, and uh, he's directed something like fifty five uh, PhDs, and he. he went through and counted all of them, and he said, uh, you know, I've got 55 PhD students, and, and 30 wrote on the guys who were fighting against Napoleon, so what does that tell you? He said, I guess that's because in the end, Napoleon ultimately lost, so everybody wants to gang up on him, and uh, I said, no, I just think that when you have a figure like Napoleon, kind of a larger-than-life figure who, who uh, had such great military success for for so many years and then he had a uh, you know a colossal collapse at the end i think i think it's a little more interesting to, to to for human nature to to understand why what happened how did it all you know how did he lose it all you know kind of like the the old dirty laundry you know what's the scoop what went wrong so uh, i i write from the perspective of of how did napoleon lose you know what were the factors that went into bringing down, you know, one of the greatest military minds in, in modern history, if not the greatest. Um, so uh, the subtitles, uh, uh, the subtitle of my first book and the subtitles of uh, the two books that are coming out in, in the summer uh, is the Franco-Prussian War. And uh, I really believe, and, and there is a debate on this in some academic circles, I, I really do believe that the Prussians bought into this idea of a, of a Befreiungskrieg, a, a, a war against, a, a war of liberation against Napoleon, and that the Prussians were the driving force in the period of 1813, 14, and 15. And, and I sincerely believe that if a if Prussia did not play the role that it did in 1813, then Napoleon would not have lost those wars um, like he did. And, and who knows, maybe he would have met his Leipzig or his Waterloo uh, further down, down the line, but he would not have met his Leipzig in 1813, and he would not have met his Waterloo in 1815 if it hadn't been for, for Prussia being the, the driving force behind this coalition. And it's very easy to answer why Prussia was, uh, the answer is because Prussia was uh, Prussia had the most to lose. Um, in fact, uh, I find it very interesting that Napoleon did not just erase Prussia from the map of Europe, uh, the, the ruling family, the Hohenzollern dynasty. I find it very interesting and curious that he did not uh, dispossess them of their throne. There were plans to do so. But uh, in the end, he did not. Uh, I believe he probably should have. Um, he did that uh, to several other rulers, the most famous uh, being the, the ruling uh, dynasty of, of, of the Kingdom of Spain. But here's a guy who also locked up the Pope. Um, so it was not uh, beyond Napoleon to do something like that. Uh, and I think that uh, had he done so, uh, he would not have suffered his Leipzig in 1813, even after having lost everything he did in 1812 in Russia. Um, so my, my angle is uh, to portray the Prussians as the, the real movers and shakers in, in, the, in the last two coalition wars that Napoleon fought and to uh, give, the, give uh, the perspective of these wars from the Allied side. The most, most famous and, and prolific uh, military historian of the Napoleonic period was uh, uh, David Chandler, and uh, he 
taught at Sandhurst in in, uh, in the UK, Britain's equivalent to our West Point, and uh, he writes from Napoleon's perspective in, in his you know massive thousand-page uh, book called The Campaigns of Napoleon. So this is kind of a, a counter to that, a, a different. Uh, uh, the, the other side of the coin, so to speak. Now, as far as uh, the next book to read, well, I, I've got to say that the, one of the best books that I've read on the Napoleonic period that has come out uh, fairly recently is Russia Against Napoleon by Dominic Levin. And uh, I uh, was at a conference with him uh, in February and had a, had a chance to, to chat with him. And he's just a, a great guy. And uh, his, his book is uh, monumental work. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of it and uh, very, uh, very much uh, have a lot of respect for him. Uh, but if you want something shorter, um, there's a new book out by uh, Monroe Price is the, is the gentleman's name. And uh, it's called The End of Glory. And it's a, a great uh, synopsis of, of what happened between 1813 and 1815. And uh, it neatly ties it up without all the military details that uh, you would get with, uh, with my uh, work on 1813 that's coming out. So those are the two books I would suggest right now uh, if you wanted to continue looking at something on Napoleon. Thanks for those recommendations, and thanks for taking the time with me this afternoon. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate it. 